to Shadow Playground. I'm excited to have a conversation with you today about play and conflict and anything else you want to talk about. Yay, thanks so much for having me. I just need to tell you how much I love the title Shadow Playground for a podcast. I'm already delighted and excited. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the pleasure having you here. My, my first question for you today is simple and complex. And the question is, when do you feel most playful? Oh, that is one of those simple, complex questions. <laughs> um, I think I feel most playful pretty much any time I'm with another person or people and there's emotional intensity. And that emotional intensity could be like deliberately intentional fun. It could be celebratory you know the times when we think that play is like our playfulness is quote unquote meant to emerge but I am also extremely playful in like very serious high intensity situations I um I can be pretty playful in conflict actually I'm often playful in tragedy um and sadness and um traumatic situations I can be really pain playful painful and playful um and I, you know I think now that I, I think about it like I really learned this I think um as a former therapist because I was doing so much trauma work um like very intense serious work with um queer and trans teenagers and they would just joke all the time. And they needed me to joke too. Like they didn't want some serious adult uh, to be like, oh, it's so sad. You're sad and terrible life. Like, you know, they wanted to tell me um, like a sarcastic joke <laughs> about, about their lives. Um, I remember I had with this one client, this thing where um, they would come in um, and I'd be like, hello, how are you? And they'd say, I'm good, how are you? And I'd say, I'm good, how are you? And they'd say, I'm good, but how are you? And we would just do this until someone had to stop. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just, I love how play can emerge and um, teach us stuff um, in all kinds of moments. That game is definitely, or that dance is definitely one that I've seen my friends play as well. How are you doing? Good, good, good. How are you? Great. Yeah, so how are you doing? And you keep repeating <laughs> it until eventually they're like, well, the truth is. <laughs> yeah. But this is amazing. I did, I mean, so many people, when it gets dense or dark or hard, so many people run away. And it sounds like you're able to actually up the playfulness, up the life in those moments. Often. I'm sure there are moments where I totally just collapse, but yeah, I am. I am one of those people who does the who does the joke in, in, in the intense moment a lot of the time. And you've done a lot of work with conflict, and you've made so many different conflict frameworks and mm. sort of concepts to help people better navigate conflict. And I'm wondering, how did you first develop an interest for conflict? And also, how did you begin to play and remix and create all these frameworks and concepts? Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I'm a mediator, I guess. Um, like that's my one of my job titles and I do a lot of workplace mediation and community-based mediation um, as opposed to, for example, um, like 
family mediation. I don't do like custody mediations. I don't do um, like elder care mediation and I don't do large settlement mediation, which are all other, you know, as you know, large sectors of mediation. Um, so uh, my focus is on people being together in community. Um, and it's funny you should ask where I developed an interest in conflict, because I would say that like a big part of me has not been ever, <laughs> remains not interested in conflict. <laughs> I'm an extremely conflict avoidant person by nature. Um, and I, I, if I'm gonna be really honest with you, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. I think I became a mediator because I wanted to make conflict go away. Um, and Bye -bye. I also like knowing mediators, right? Like <laughs> I, this is a lot of mediators. <laughs> um, we wanna be mediators to make conflict disappear. And I think one of the best ways to make a conflict worse is to try to make it disappear. Shushu, shushu, bye-bye. Yeah, exactly. Like, we're all feeling good now. Or like, you know, people um, who have siblings like me uh, may know the pain of like, you know, the parents being like, kiss and make up. I'm like, kiss and make up. <laughs> Horrible. So, um, yeah. But I, I, I mean, more seriously, I mean, I got interested in studying conflict um, because I had some really big conflicts in my life. Um, conflict was always seen as very terrifying and dangerous in my family, as it is for many people, but there was also lots and lots of conflict in my family. Um, and then in queer community, I just experienced and noticed all around me what I perceived to be at the time, like a, a really high intensity conflict culture, um, which like, um, also seemed pretty traumatic. Like there are families and communities where conflict is open and loud and common and um, actually it's not traumatic or bad, like actually it's fine. Um, but what I experienced in, you know, my queer communities in North America slash Turtle Island um, was like a really traumatic uh, conflict culture uh, where people got really hurt um, and it wasn't okay. And so I was like, there must be a way that I, Kai Cheng Tom, can solve this problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I, you know, I've always been an essay writer, but um, I knew that essays are like, I know that not everybody wants to read an essay about conflict. Um, and so I started putting diagrams together um, to kind of like map conflict for people and for myself. And um those maps became very popular on Instagram and I just kept making them and that is that's my story <laughs> I have this image of you you know walking off into the sunset on a quest of like okay <laughs> my family has conflict my community is written with conflict I'm I'm you know scared of, of entering into these conflicts I need to you know I'm gonna find something and find the tools the information the practice whatever I need to bring them back. How has that whole journey been for you from that point of setting out and you know really establishing yourself as a conflict expert now? Well, I mean, I felt my whole body contract in pain as you said conflict expert because this is me. I whenever someone says Kai Cheng is the conflict woman, Kai Cheng is the conflict expert, which they do frequently now, um I'm like oh, that means I have to be really good at having conflict. 
And the truth is I am not like, I've gotten way better at holding other people's conflicts. Sure. But my own conflict with um, people remains quite challenging. I, I think I have gotten better. Like I would say I've gotten maybe 5% better. I have people in my life who, who I observe as being incredibly skilled at their own inter interpersonal conflict. Um, and I'm so jealous of them and inspired by them. Um, and I, I know that's actually not where I am. So uh, yeah, it, it's a bit funny because I think I'm, you know, on the internet, people really see me as, as knowing a lot about conflict. And that's true in a certain sense. I, I know a lot about conflict patterns. Um, I can recognize and understand conflict pretty well. And I am decently good at like holding people through, uh, you know, um, their conflicts with others. But that's that perfect. And we will turn it down, tone it down a notch, a decently good conflict, you know, decently good imperfect conflict expert. How's that? <laughs> I like that. Thank you. No, it's much better. I mean, oh, I, I think, you know, you, when you said the setting into the sunset thing, and also this, like, the title of this podcast is The Shadow Playground, so it makes me think about Jung and Joseph Campbell and, you know, uh, Hero with Many Faces or whatever. And, and you know, it's funny because I really did set out to slay conflict. Like, I was like, like a dragon, you know, like, like to destroy conflict, make it go away. And well, that's just not what has happened. I, I've learned a lot about how conflict is such a necessary part of life. Not just necessary in that we need to like name and address it. I, I get worried sometimes about things like nonviolent communication, which I love, but I get worried like about maybe like dogmas around nonviolent communication or other um, like kind of um, cult, like um, like intentional, technologies, like social technologies for conflict resolution. Um, I, I really fear them because I could see myself using them as a way to make conflict go away or like try to drive conflict underground. Um, and what I have observed is that conflict often does need to breathe and burn um, the way like a forest needs to burn <laughs> actually I'm in like the seasonal cycle of renewal. And my God, that's very scary. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's why we're having these conversations, I think, to normalize that process and normalize that allowing of the allowing for that fire. For from your work, what how do you describe conflict and what are some of its hidden gems? Ooh. Yeah, I tend to describe conflict two ways. One is that it is a competition um, to get one's physical or social needs met. Um, so, you know, the physical needs are like food and water and clothing. And, you know, this is where, honestly, many of the, you know, very intense and serious conflicts over land comes from. Um, and, um, you know, atrocities have followed from that kind of conflict. There's also conflict over um, getting one's social needs met. Um, so like competing for dominance or attention in a space, competing for social approval in a space. And these competitions are almost never um, balanced in power, right? Like the colonial empire that steals land from indigenous people is having conflict with indigenous people, but it's, it's not just conflict that's normative, it's abusive conflict, it's imperialist conflict. And the conflict that happens in a social space for social approval between you know, queer people and straight people is not a normative conflict either. That is an oppressive conflict where one side has you know, more power uh, than the other. So you know, important to remember this. And then I also really like this definition of conflict as um, 
like a system demanding transformation, um, like conflict, and this is what brings us to the gems, I guess, is that conflict is very painful uh, often and quite terrifying for most people. Um, but it really does show us where relationships and systems are not working. Um, and th that is something we need to know. If we think about um, the power inequities that are built into most social conflicts um, and the histories of oppression that are, are woven into that, we actually really do need to know um, where things are going wrong um, so that we can correct and change injustice. And on a much smaller scale, conflict between families or friends or you know, people in community um, show us what we might need to change in order to love one another more effectively, um, more deeply, more truly. Um, and, you know, when you sell it like that, who could say no? <laughs> Sign me up. Where can I? <laughs> 12 easy payments. <laughs> I really like that distinction you're making between uh, a conflict and you know an oppressive conflict, and I'm wondering how might you how might one be able to know what kind of conflict you're in? You know, one that's uh, I suppose happening in an interpersonal sense, or one that's being really influenced by a lot of systemic um, dynamics of oppression. Ooh, you're just gonna ask all the spicy questions today. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. This is like, if, if like the spiciness of these questions were like on a pepper scale, this would be like a three or four pepper question. Um, I, I think this is under a lot of, this question you're asking about how do we know what kind of conflict we're in is under huge contention right now in um, like contemporary social discussion or social discourse. I hate that word discourse, so I try to avoid using it, but it feels appropriate right now. Um, have you heard of um, Sarah Schulman's book, Conflict is Not Abuse? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. Well, this book came out about, um, I would say, six years ago. Yeah, 2016. And it was massive in uh, queer community and activist communities. Um, it was a bestseller, even though, like, fr uh, from an indie publisher. Um, and, you know, in the book, uh, Schulman, who is, like, a very, you know, celebrated uh, queer writer, um, uh, who also was present for um, activism, activism around the AIDS crisis, she writes about how what, what she sees as um, like a culture of conflict escalation um, and um, the conflation of um, abuse and normative conflict and um, like socially rewarded overstatement of harm. And the book caused such a ruffle, like it really, you know, and like, because, because what we want to do, what most of us want to do, not everyone, but what a lot of us will want to do in a conflict, any kind of conflict, is um, stay, is keep the conversation centered on our own injury, which inherently is a conversation about, a, um, you know, um, oppressor and perpetrator or, you know, um, survivor and perpetrator or victim, uh, you know, and, and offender. Um, and there's lots of great reasons for wanting the conversation to stay that way, because it means that we don't have to reflect on our own, you know, potential errors, and the errors are all the other persons. We're always trying to say that conflict is an oppressive conflict, and we see people compete. There's conflict about conflict in this way, because people will compete for the role of the underdog in, in conflicts. Um, we see this on a small scale, um, like um, where, you know, I might have a conflict with, I don't know, my friend about 
whether or not they gave me back the book that I loaned them. And I'll be like, my goodness, you're just such an irresponsible, terrible friend. And you're always taking advantage of me. And then my friend might be like, wow, you can never cut me any slack. And you're just such a nag. And, you know, you're so, you never, you're, you're um, greedy and you don't want to redistribute your resources, right? So, you know, this is the natural way of conflict. Um, and then it becomes quite serious um, when we, you know, um, widen the lens to the social scale and people are, you know, a really powerfully evocative example, of course, is the discussion around is um, Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories, where um, there's one really powerful narrative um, uh, around Palestinians actually being an, an oppressed indigenous peoples. And then, of course, um, a different perspective of where, you know, is uh, where Israel is sort of storied as um, the oppressed group. And of course, the truth is it, it lies in layers. Like there are many, many complex layers uh, to that conflict. Though I should out myself and say that I, I do tend to be like a Palestinian rights um, kind of person, just to put that on the table. But um, yes, so we are we're competing for that, um, and um, it's very hard. It's very murky. Like what to tell what kind of conflict we're in because we're so invested in you know um, maintaining an underdog position. Um, but what I would say is we know when conflict has become harmful, when there has been um, a boundary violation. So, you know, if I, I like to believe, and I've learned, you know, this from many different teachers, um, that each human being and each group is sovereign in itself. You know, I have a right to my body and my thoughts and my feelings and my fantasies, you know, my, you know, my sexuality and my identity. That's my um, domain. I guess that's what Betty Martin, who is a consent educator, would say. That's my domain. Um, now, because we are humans in a social world, our domains do overlap. That's what I believe. Betty would disagree, but I think our domains overlap. Um, and in the place where you know my right and my responsibility, my sovereignty over my body crosses over with someone else's sovereignty over their body, like when we have sex and might pass communicable diseases, when we're sharing space and we're talking about should we wear masks or not, right? That's the place where domains overlap. And um, that's the place where conflict is born when we have disagreements. Um, about sovereignty. Now, when someone reaches past the threshold of overlap and tries to force me to do something with my body um, or my mind, you know, whatever, um, coercion, I would say that is where we're, we start to go into the realm of harm. And this is very sticky because people will see some actions as appropriate and others as inappropriate. So let's just leave that on the shelf and say, yeah, okay, so we're going to disagree on the definition of appropriate. But where, but I think we can agree where someone's um, incursion into my sovereignty is inappropriate, that's a violation and it's harmful, right? So that would be like an assault, um, you know, or blackmail, these kinds of things. Um, so that's harm. And where the harm is accompanied by a power, an imbalanced power dynamic, and the person with more power is using that power to commit a boundary violation, I would say that is abuse. It is um, because it is an abuse of power in the relationship. And you know, people will start to get always start to get you know like heated up when when I talk about this, which makes sense. Um, can someone with less social power abuse someone with more? Yes, I would say yes. But when we look at the pattern of conflict, abuse of conflict, what I see is that a severe or repeated boundary violation can actually establish a power over a dynamic. So take two children on the playground with relatively equal power. Um, 
one who is doing bullying will do a repeated boundary violation of the other child. And this creates a dynamic um, of power and control. So we go from boundary violation to power dynamic, and these things feed into one another. One of the things that we've looked at a lot on this podcast is around how might we dance and play with interpersonal conflict. So meaning, you know, exaggerating our voices, allowing ourselves to really remix the dynamics, really question ourselves, really, you know, lean into it, breathe, move, all those kinds of things. And so I guess the, and I'm hearing elements of this question in what you were just saying, um, can we still bring those, those dynamics of playing and dancing when we move into spaces of harm, abuse, et cetera? Or is there sort of a, and the way that you see it, is there sort of a line where we kind of need to actually disengage, protect, run away kind of thing? Hmm. Well, you know, just because I know that this will be on people's minds, <laughs> having had similar conversations before, I think the first thing I would say is that um, I think running away is a really wonderful survival option. And we should always run away if like, you know, if that's what's going to save our lives. Um, and this is key, you know, I do a lot of teaching about conflict and, um, you know, interpersonal healing work. And a big question that comes up a lot is like, um, are you saying that I have to stay in relationship with an abuser? And my goodness, no. <laughs> like, I would say that the first rule of a trauma-informed, healing-centered conflict practice is that people who have experienced abusive harm or maybe even just harm, like serious harm, um, should not have to remain in relationship. And, and that's, you know, I don't think we should coerce people. And, and I know you're not saying that either, but, you know, I think people worry that that's what I'm telling them <laughs> when I talk about um, uh, conflict resolution or transformative justice. So if we want to run away, I think we should run away. But, um, you know, maybe we could run away with more play, <laughs> more playfulness as well, right? Uh, we're very serious about conflict. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, um, I think there is so much um, joyfulness to play in the lighter conflict space. Like, um, you know, you took my book. <laughs> like, what are you like some kind of capitalist book hoarder? You need them all, right? <laughs> like, you know, like this sort of bunny dance actually immediately lifts us out of the space of conflict almost into sort of a relational dance. Um, but the heavier conflicts are a bit more challenging because we want to, um, you know, uh, heavy conflict, harmful conflict, intense conflict. Um, usually puts us in fear of being dehumanized, or we already have been dehumanized. And so playfulness, I think, can often be experienced as mocking and further dehumanization. And what we want to do is rehumanize uh, one another in, in conflict that has been hurtful. So um, yeah, I, I would be very cautious about that. And also like, you know, colonial and legal standards of conflict resolution are very serious and have no room for you know the, the ambiguity of play or humor, right? So there's that to remember as well. Um, but I think where room for play can kind of creep in um, is like in the ritual that we hold around conflict, like, um, like, um, I like to open some of the group conflict mediations I do with a check-in that that is like the prompt, um, you know, hello, my name is 
Kai Chang or, you know, my name is this and my pronouns are this and something I would rather be doing today is, <laughs> you know, everyone has something they would rather be doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know? I'm just going to so pause for a second. That prompt is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, you know, just like a gentle acknowledgement of we hate this. <laughs> because it, it, the reason it's such a genius prompt is that it actually subverts the, it's it's subversive, the entire, and, and so gentle, and immediately the entire sh space is shifted because everyone's acknowledging that everyone wants to be elsewhere. You're acknowledging people of other passions. You're also acknowledging that there is a conflict. I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful way to bring people into a gentle, a gentle space of play while acknowledging there's a big thing to talk about. Thank you. Yes, I am in love with this prompt. <laughs> um, I don't think I invented it, or, but I, I think I might have, like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure other people are using that prompt, but I, um, yeah, I love it so much. And it, it really, for me, ties into some of the conflict theory that I've really loved, like um, the importance of, like, lifting people's um, resistance, like, up into, um, like, the conscious space and, um, and like looking at it with love, <laughs> you know, like, of course you'd rather be on a beach. And you know what? I would say 50% of people who respond to this prompt would say something water related, which is really interesting. I'd rather be on the beach. I'd rather be on a boat. I'd rather be, you know, <laughs> traveling somewhere else. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think there is room, but we have to do it with, um, there's room for play in the heavy conflict space. But I think that play has to be done in the spirit of sacredness. Yeah, that's very clear. And I completely agree. One thing that comes to mind for me is also in our own posture, our own interaction. Uh, so for instance, I was speaking to uh, someone the other day who was in a very complex conflict situation and we mapped it out as though it was a, you know, using graphics and lines and arrows. And in that sense, it becomes the way that person is interacting with the conflict, it's like, okay, what happened if we move this person here? What happened if we do this? And so the way that, the way that you're interacting with it or your own internal posture, I think there's always space to play with that. I'm wondering if you'd have, um, you'd be able to continue with that example of the book, you and your friend, uh, you know, you've given your book and you haven't given it back. And maybe just walk us through what would be the, the steps from beginning to end of a healthy conflict cycle? Mm, yeah, well, huh. You know, my like very like fuzzy theoretical answer is like, oh, it looks different for each situation and every relationship is unique. And I think that's really true. Like, um, you know, like um, with my um, like best friend, we probably actually would just do this joking thing that we referenced earlier. Like, you know, why do you need to own every book in the universe? Like, what are you going to do with them? Do you have some master plan? Right. Like, you know, um, why are you always stealing from me? Right? Like it would become, we could exaggerate a joke. And then, you know, I, I can imagine your particular friend right now where I could see us just dying of laughter over that. Um, and then, you know, if I were going to have that conflict with my mother, it might look kind of different, <laughs> um, you know, um, because each person brings different triggers into the space. Um, and some people might be much more triggered um, than others. But, you know, I, I know people also like to walk away from, from podcasts and stuff with like a clear tool. And so I will provide one, which is just that very like popular, but very difficult um, tool that is repeating what someone has said to you um, without any additions um, or, um, uh, I don't know, uh, or um, 
like reservations. So often what will happen in a conflict when people are trying to be, you know, adults are trying to be really good is they're gonna, they're gonna listen. They're like, they know they're supposed to listen. So, you know, someone will say, you stole my book and, um, you know, it's terrible and blah, 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 blah. And um, then, so then, you know, you're listening and kind of being like, oh, this is why the person is so wrong. So you're describing why they're wrong. I'm being proven more right by the minute. Um, and then the, you might, one might say, yes. So I'm hearing that, uh, um, you know, you felt bad when I told you to give me my book back. Um, so yeah, I guess I could have asked um, more politely, um, but the truth is it's my property and you need to give it back. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and people think they're being so generous because they're like, look, I acknowledge what you're saying, but also here's why you're wrong. <laughs> and a very simple tool that can be so helpful, like unbelievably helpful, um, unbelievably simple, unbelievably difficult, is to just disconnect to those two pieces of I'm listening to you and here's why you're wrong. Um, so, you know, if we imagine that's a two car train, just take the last car off, <laughs> like just take it off. Uh, Bye. So, <laughs> you know, uh, just repeat what the other person said. Um, so I get that when I asked you for my book back, um, it felt like I was um, throwing my weight around and um, I was giving you an order and you felt really disrespected by me. Um, and there was maybe like a power dynamic showing up in our relationship and it felt shitty. Is that right? Stop talking. Um, like zip. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? No more talking. <laughs> Um, and like the power of that tool is um, often you will be right. And the other person will say, yes. And like, the, you'll see the, like, there's like a little bit of like a somatic draw, like their body will be like, oh, relaxed because they'll be like, well, at least they've heard me. And sometimes they'll be like, no, that's not it. And then they'll proceed to tell you more, which is also a win because then you will have learned that you've misunderstood them. Um, and they will learn that you're willing to hear more so that you can understand them. And then, you know, I would just keep doing this, like just repeat back what they've said and asking, am I understanding you? Am I getting it right? Am I understanding you? Um, until they're like, yes, I understand you. And like, just leave that other train car in the background as long as you can. Um, and sometimes I might even try to see if there's more, like I might ask someone, um, is there anything else you want me to know? Is there anything else you want me to understand? And by the time they finished their thing and you've been there listening, you might actually have changed your mind about my conflict. Um, like with this book example, I might be like, oh, like my, my friend might suddenly be like, and you know, it's, you've always just had more money in our relationship and it's actually really gross <laughs> how we talk about it. And then I've learned something, right? <laughs> and if I can just hang on to, you know, my second train car and keep it in the background, then I actually have learned something very important about the relationship, which is that the difference in our incomes has always been a barrier. And we might want to do something about that. So then, you know, you might ask someone, would it be okay for you? Would you, do, are you feeling able to hear my perspective? And maybe your perspective has already changed, right? So then you can offer them something that's closer, like more, um, like more aligned with what they're saying, which is great. And maybe your perspective has not changed, um, but they have really felt at least respected in listening to you, in being listened to. Um, and then you give them, you know, your your second train car, and uh, you see what happens next. 
It's <laughs> mm, a great tool. And I, I, I interpret it as a very loving thing because you're really pressing pause on your own needs, ideas, interpretation, and really opening up a space to hear the other person's story. And I know that you called the conflict uh, workbook on your site, Choose Love. Uh, can you talk about the role that love might play in a conflict process and also why you chose that title specifically for that workbook? Yeah, well, you know, the workbook is a follow-up to a book of essays I published called, so the book of essays is called I Hope We Choose Love, and it's sort of like, I don't know, what established my brand as like a conflict-focused person in the world. <laughs> I didn't mean for this to happen. I just wrote a book about conflict, and then it was called I Hope We Choose Love, and people were like, oh, Kai Chang, she's got some ideas. <laughs> um, and that was even before I went to mediation school. Um, and then a common piece of feedback I got about the book was like, wow, you did a really good job of um, expressing some fe common feelings about conflict, but I wanted practical tools because the book is not self-help actually. It's like a book of cultural essays. And I was like, huh, okay. So then I created this workbook called So You're Ready to Choose Love. And it was meant to link those two things together, my S book of essays and this workbook. And the idea of choosing love for me is just like, doing this thing like so we could decide in our example with the book that my friend has been actually just really irresponsible and shitty and is taking advantage of me and even with an example as innocuous as this one like I've given enough conflict seminars to know that in a big enough room someone somewhere is going to get triggered by, by this example right because it immediately starts people thinking about like all the times their items were stolen or they've been taken advantage of or someone is like oh yeah I do have a rich friend who's always giving me their largesse and then setting a boundary on me and it's disgusting, they treat me like a child. Like I could easily see how someone might get very triggered by this light, supposedly light example um, because no conflict is actually that small for us. It's always like triggering other stuff in the back of the brain. Um, and so, you know, I guess the choosing love part is the practice part for me and the courage part for me. It's like saying, yes, I do have this other train car or like maybe like 10 or 11, right? Like all stretching all the way back to my infancy, right? My childhood, which is really fair. Like we do actually carry these long trains of perspective and experience, um, you know, driven by the engine of our need to survive um, in the world. Um, so we could choose um, to just keep driving the train, you know? And maybe that train takes us, you know, where we need to go, or maybe it smashes into someone else's train and there's a massive explosion right we could make that choice and I actually you know don't want to stigmatize it um explosion metaphor aside sometimes the train does take us where we want to go um or we could choose to disconnect to the cars um right uh, like the like and do the listening which is very hard um but maybe that transforms the relationship and so, you know, maybe we do want to make that choice and choice is key. It's not about like, I could have written a book that's like, love is mandatory, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to have love, do love. Um, sometimes I joke that I'm going to write a horror novel follow-up called You Should Have Chosen Love. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you'll wish you'd chosen love. But um, I really think that conflict resolution has to be a consent-based process because that's the only way it will work. Okay, that was a lot of rambling. Did any of it make sense? It all made sense and it, I think it's a I think it's a gift to express engaging wholeheartedly 
and you, you know with a real sense of listening in conflict as love because it's so easy to talk about mm. flowers and chocolates and services and the whole love language conversation Con engaging beautifully in conflict is not included in the original love languages <laughs> but That's i think it, huh. but it is a really beautiful gift to give someone i i've also been in conflicts where i am you know spitting with rage or jealousy or feel like my like, insides have been caved out because i'm so sad and one of the invitations that you have is to, while connecting with love, also connect to your own sacredness. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how might one do that, especially in moments when, you know, your emotions are making you want to like, you know, uh, scream, yell, stomp, uh, slam the door. Uh, connect, run away, right? Or disconnect, run away. I mean, I, choose your choose your reaction. <laughs> I mean, because being connected to our own sacredness is what allows us to really do that listening thing. Um, because if we're doing the listening thing, we're more than likely going to hear a negative story about ourselves. And my God, that is painful. It's like the most painful experience. <laughs> and sometimes people That's have a reward. <laughs> it's a reward for listening is you got a negative story about yourself. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh God, isn't it the worst? Um, Although sometimes in those stories, it's very important information about what you have done. So that's really key, um, but it's not nice. It's so unpleasant. Um, and I think that's why most people do choose to scream and stomp and run away or you know just not listen. Because if we don't feel that we are sacred and we're not connected to it, then that other person telling us their perspective is just gonna feel like denigration. Like it's just mm -hmm. gonna make us hate ourselves. And so we will of course defend ourselves from that. Um, that's the most natural thing in the world. Um, but if we can hang on to our sacredness and receive the story, that's when, you know, good things can happen. And if we're lucky, then the person telling us the negative story is also kind of, you know, telling us, but also kind of looking, holding on to, you know, the sacredness of our relationship. And so they're not telling us in a way that's super hurtful. They're telling us in a slightly more gentle way or whatever. Um, so that's key. But we cannot rely on the other person to do that work for us. We actually have to do it ourselves, no matter what. And um, yeah, it's um, it's like the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> so hard. Well, even just hearing you say that, it kind of just, it fills me with energy because hard things often matter. They often really matter to us. And if we didn't care, we wouldn't be showing up for this, you know, transcendent conflict that we're about to have. I know, I guess. I think one thing I also want to add is I'm thinking about this is like the instinct to pull away or to like slam the door is so often shamed, right? In like the personal development world, certainly shamed in HR. Um, you know, we're, it's seen as shameful and inappropriate. And I, I feel like sometimes in personal development or like leadership coaching kind of communities, we have this sort of like, oh, well, that person's just not very evolved, like kind of negative view. But um, I always like to think, and I, I believe deeply that in a conflict, people are always doing what feels most survivable. Um, and if we really take a moment to ask ourselves, you know, when has the instinct to slam the door or cry or run away saved our lives? So maybe we get some important answers. And certainly even if, you know, that instinct has never saved our lives, I think it's universally true that this part of us that wants to do um, that kind of destructive conflict is trying really hard 
to save our lives. Um, and that is an important, valuable thing. Hmm. Oh, definitely. And I, I think I really enjoy what you shared earlier on about the system trying needing to find another equilibrium. And, yeah. and that could look like saving your life or saving the relationship or the, the system that you're in. I know there's so many layers to conflict. And I, I'm really, I'm noticing a, in this conversation, we're adding on layers of complexity, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is beautiful because you can engage to the level that you want to. I want to ask you about three different concepts. And, yes. and I'd like to just hear your immediate reactions of how they pertain to conflict. Um, so shadow, how does shadow show up and connect with uh, show up in conflict? Uh, a value compass, sort of a value compass that you've, you've developed this as a tool. How does that, how might this guide, guide us? And the notion of accountability. So shadow values and accountability. How did those, you know, as we increase the complexity of our conversation, how do those three things um, connect to conflict? Whew, spicy. Um, we needed to up there. You said you wanted some spicy habanero where we got to spice it up. Five spice question. Um, yeah, I would say shadow is like very, it's like a, a concept I return to a lot. Um, uh, you know, shadow, I see, you know, the Jungian shadow is, a, a, you know, a sort of unintegrated part of the self, right? Like the unwanted part of the self. And the shadow is always getting stirred in a conflict because, as we mentioned, someone is telling us a negative story about you. And there is already a part of everyone that believes that story, right? Like if my friend is like, you're a greedy book hoarder. There should be a part of me that feels, you know, greedy and unlovable, right? And, and I don't want to see that or hear about it. So, you know, I might defend myself from that. Yeah, I would also say that we, um, in the attempt to our own shadow in conflict, we will project it onto the other um, person we're in conflict with. Um, and so I, you know, I, I see a lot of interesting conflicts where um, people will say, you know, about the other person, like, they're so awful. Look at what they're doing. Like and secretly in my mind, I'll be like, oh yeah, that's also what you're doing. <laughs> I have no clue uh, often, right? Like, um, that the behavior that they are really reacting against is the behavior that they are doing. Um, I teach a lot of um, courses or do a lot of work in like um, racial justice focused spaces. Um, and um, I often will see white people in conflict with other white people. Um, and like, sometimes it's like this weird competition about who is the most anti-racist, you know? And I'm like, okay, like this conflict you're having is really about yourself, right? Like, <laughs> we're just trying to work out, you know, it's, people are often trying to work out their own demons by projecting them onto other people. So that's a shadow. The values compass, I would say, is, um, it's like it helps us to realign ourselves. Like, you know, the part of ourself that wants to run away or to denigrate the other person um, like I said, useful and valuable, and you know, I want to really acknowledge and honor those parts of ourselves. But in relationships, right, most people are actually not—they don't want to choose those parts as what as their intentional values, right? And so, having a clear compass about how do I want to show up in a conflict, who do I want to be in a conflict, can really help us to check in with our behavior and say, okay, like what. What values am I actually embodying um, right now? 
So that's concept two. And then the third concept, I think accountability is a very thorny issue. It is the center of many conflicts that I work on. Um, I really like to separate that word into like account, which is like taking stock of telling the story, truth telling and ability like capacity, um, as opposed to accountability like accountability measures, <laughs> like a punishment. You know, I really think of accountability, true accountability as the way that groups um, foster or, or support the individual to um, like have capacity to, to uh, take ownership of the own behavior um, by themselves. Um, and so, you know, for me, real accountability looks like um, someone being able to stand up in a space and say, oh, you know, I did take your book um, and I do actually need to give it back. <laughs> that was wrong um, because you trusted me to give it back and the other person being able to say, and I genuinely actually really hear how um, like the power dynamics in our friendship have influenced um, the way we give each other gifts um, or the way we lend each other stuff. And I have a part to play in that as well, right? Um, and for those two people to be able to do that, they need all kinds of like support from the social web that they live in, um, or ideally they have it, right? Um, and so, yeah, I really prefer to see accountability as um, a type of capacity building rather than the action of punishment. Hmm, beautiful. What are you excited to explore uh, in the field of conflict going forward? You amass a lot of expertise and experiences. What a good question. I have a, quite a few teachers actually who say some version of the same thing, which is that you cannot take anyone else, like when you are a guide or a facilitator, you can't take anyone else further than you've already gone yourself. And I don't think that's always true. <laughs> But I think it's very true in the field of conflict mediation. Um, I really, in the past two years that I've been doing this um, extensively, have I've been seeing where my own personal lack of clarity or my fears, um, my avoidant behaviors um, have limited where I am able to guide a group or an individual in a conflict where they're, that they're in. Um, and all the like fancy frameworks in the world are not gonna change that. Um, although they might help me, but like, um, I really think like I've come to believe that the greater capacity I have in my nervous system to be in conflict and be okay, um, the more insight and skill I will have, you know, guiding other people through that process. I can't ask them to be more okay than I actually am. Um, because as a mediator, it's my job to generate safety. Um, so I actually have to feel safe and know how to be, have, know how to do that. Um, and that's like, that's the main question I'm really excited to dive into is like really practicing this okayness to hear someone's negative story about me and um, not collapse. Ugh. Oh. Even as I say that intention, I'm like, I've set myself up for something very hard, huh? <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for this, this spicy conversation. I wish you many a playful conflict going forward. I wish you the best of luck exploring the far off lands and sharing where your discoveries with people you work with. Awesome. All, the, all the best. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.